I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The thing about pop stardom is that it's escape. It's fantasy, right? Like, I think about what those songs meant to me, what much music meant to me, and being like, whoa, I believe. And not only do I believe in this singer, but I believe in myself, maybe. I believe maybe this is what I want to do. I want, I, you know, like, that's the beauty of pop stardom. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. And I'm Trana Winter. That's Vivek Shreya. You just heard she is our guest today. Multidisciplinary artist, true Canadian queer icon. We spoke to her about childhood dreams and what happens when they come true and when they don't. More of that conversation later in the show. This summer, as part of uh, the French side of Just for Laughs Festival, the big comedy festival that's happening in Montreal, you were asked to perform on the most iconic, legendary stage, certainly in Montreal, I would say in Canada. And you did it. I did it. Place des Arts, Sal Wilfred Peltier. And that stage has a lot of meaning to me. I saw Alanis Morissette there. I saw Diana Ross there. I mean, I love that stage. Do not get me wrong. But my graduation ceremony from high school was in that room. My graduation <laughs> my graduation ceremony from Concordia was there as well. And they call your name. You get the diploma. You walk down the, the yeah, stairs. Yeah, to me, and- that was my moment of stardom. That's crazy. So earlier this summer, you get a message from Montreal's own Rita Baga. (laughs) Rita uh, was on Canada's Drag Race. She was the runner-up. And then last winter, she was on a very successful reality television show in Quebec called Big Brother Celebrité. Of course, it's Big Brother Celebrities for for us in French. Um, And she became a star. Exactly. She was one of us. And then she (laughs) became basically like one of the biggest stars in Quebec of the moment. Yeah. She was given a gala to host, a carte blanche gala for the French side of Just for Lives, Just Pour Rire. So Rita and her co-host, Jean-Thomas Jobin, um, sort of get to choose who they want to be on their gala. They host it. So Rita sent me a message and asked me if I wanted to do it. This was maybe four weeks away from the show date. So not a lot of advance warning. And just to just to be clear, you had not performed on a stage since March 2020. Since even before then, honestly. Wow. Yeah. So we're talking at, you know, around a so year. So you and get a this half. message, it's the one stage you've been dreaming of. Exactly. You get this opportunity, you haven't been on stage and she's asking you to perform in French. Yeah. And then because it's filmed for television, the number has to be exclusive. And I used up all my good French stuff on a couple of TV shows I did before the pandemic. So I had no material. I had to write a brand new 10-minute set. And usually that takes comedians like a couple of months to perfect and work out, especially because everyone is bringing their best material to the gala. And then I had like, you know, by the time I wrote it, barely three weeks to practice it. Right. And the thing with, with stand-up is you can't 
I mean, you can you can memorize it at home, but yeah. you need an audience. You need an audience. And so they lined up a few warm-up performances for us. So my very first time back on stage after all of this time was a warm-up at this little comedy club in the plateau. And, you know, that very afternoon I was still working on my material. And because it's French, and again, I don't think as quickly on my feet in French, I need to memorize it. Mm -hmm. So I was like frantically trying to memorize it. And I felt like I had gotten it, but it wasn't fully solidified. And even just returning to a performance space where there were actual people, I was so nervous. Mm -hmm. And I felt just total self-doubt and uncertainty and the material felt so shaky to me. And I got up on stage and like barely a minute in, I started forgetting my lines. I started forgetting where I was in my set. Luckily, the joke still landed, but my energy and my pacing was like all over the place. I had to keep looking at my phone. At one point, I was just basically reading the jokes from my phone. Like I felt so, I felt like there was no ground beneath me. I felt so shaky. And that was kind of devastating. <laughs> it's and then it made me panic because I'm like, I have the fucking gala in three weeks. Like, how the fuck am I going to pull this out of my ass? Okay. So the material that you wrote was what I find fascinating. So I've read I've read your set. I haven't seen it because I was out of town that day. So I think one thing that is great about that set and that challenge that you gave yourself was that you had to write for Francophone Quebecers. And you live here, you're a Quebecer yourself, but you don't have that much... You have some knowledge, but you don't know all the intricacies and the details of Quebec's pop culture and and, and politics. <laughs> and politics, and in some ways, it serves you because you're kind of a bit oblivious yes. to all of it. But in other ways, it can really hit you because there are a lot of um, sensitivities. Yes. So there was a part of my set that was really very much rooted in that um, in terms of the star system that exists here and who becomes famous in Quebec and who doesn't. And, you know, I'm sort of fascinated by that. And there's this inherent tackiness to Quebec celebrity culture as well that I love. But there's also this, you know, aspect of Quebec culture that is extremely white mm -hmm. and that is extremely lacking in diversity. Homogenous. Very. So I jokingly said, well, from what I can see, it looks like to be famous in Quebec, the only thing you need to do is be white and not have a personality. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't sound that bad in English. It doesn't sound that bad in English. So it, at the first warm-up show, that was there was a little like a little resistance from the audience, but nothing major. Then we had this other warm-up show that was in this big theater in Laval of all places. A this suburb. hard to get to suburb in Montreal. And um I was doing great. The audience was like pretty on board with me. And then I got to that joke and it was like dead silence. And then I was like, okay, this is a little harsh. <laughs> so I knew from that moment, okay, I'm gonna rework this. But when I got home that night on Twitter, I thought the experience was sort of funny. So I tweeted about that joke and how it was received with silence, but that the irony was that the entire audience was white. So they kind of proved my point. And that tweet got a lot of likes, a lot of traction. And what that resulted in was a lot of French alt-right slash nationalist people really coming after me. They really were accusing me of being anti-Quebec, anti-Francophone. 
And that added to the stress of getting on that Place des Arts stage. And like, okay, my material is shaky. My confidence is shaken. And now I have knives at my back. (laughs) (laughs) So were you thinking about these things also like preparing? No, not at all. That day I was so nervous, obviously. Well, you had amazing shoes. You bought shoes. I know I did have amazing shoes. And I'm like, that shit helps. But honestly, the only thing that kept going through my head that whole day, um, and I think it really helped me because I was super conscious of it and kept reminding myself the whole day was just have fun. Mm. Like the world is on fire, but somehow this dream that you've had forever is actually happening. So just shut up and be happy and enjoy this moment. Allow yourself to feel like mm-hmm. the star that you've always dreamed of being. And so it's showtime. I'm, you know, first you're backstage. They bring you backstage like 10 minutes before. Then three minutes before they bring you right to the stage. And you're just waiting in the wings with like one of the producers or one of the stage managers. And I have never been that nervous in my life. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, if you really want to know, when I was like, you know, right by the stage in those three minutes before my name is called, I literally kept repeating to myself, you are Barbara Streisand in 1963. <laughs> <laughs> Why 1963? Because that's when she was just right, starting. Right. And that's when she was her most courageous mm-hmm. and like her most bold. And I just kept repeating myself to like summon that spirit in me. So well, you control- got out there in the middle of a light show with your your <laughs> name on screen. Yeah, it was a beautiful stage. Uh, yeah, and then there's the I mean, the there there were hundreds of people. It wasn't full because of social distancing, but it was still like it a, was still full, yeah. and it felt full, and yeah. there was a real energy. Yeah, and. When I got on that stage and I did my first joke and it landed, I felt like I had the mm. audience in my hands. I felt so present. I wasn't worried about remembering my lines. Luckily, there was also a teleprompter, which I didn't rely on, <laughs> but it felt really good to have. And I just felt it. And there was this mm. momentum and applause breaks and like, you know, and I I modified my controversial joke, but it was still in there in a new way. And it's, it went over really well. And then at the end of it, I got a standing ovation. That's great. Which blew me over. Like, really? I, yeah, I was really emotional. Okay. Like, I was stunned. And I did allow myself for a few seconds that day to be like, imagine if you got a standing ovation. Mm. And it actually happened mm. on this, like, stage that, like, I'm going to get emotional now. Like, this stage that meant so much to me. And from this audience that doesn't really know me and that reaction from the audience brought me back to life in a way, honestly. I know that sounds so corny, but they love me back to life. I know. (laughs) I'm loving the Celine reference. I. Having Vivek Shreya on Chosen Family was meant to be. And something that we've been working on making happen for a long time, so it was truly a thrill. Vivek Shreya is an artist who's body of work really crosses the medium of music, literature, visual art, theater, and even film. Her 2017 album, Part-Time Woman, was nominated for the Polaris Prize, and her best-selling book, I'm Afraid of Men, was heralded by Vanity Fair as cultural rocket fuel, and it really is. Even though Vivek and us grew up 
at opposite sides of the country, there's this like shared experience. There's shared, we're diehard Madonna fans and we had to start the interview there. Yes. <laughs> Finally. So you must be in my age bracket because I feel like the young the young kids they don't get it, right? They're just like that woman needs to go away, but I'm just like, "No, we need to we need to respect. We need to show respect." So that's so great. So what is your connection to to, you know, Truth or Dare, the Blonde Ambition concert film and that sort of like visual aesthetic of the early 90s? Yeah, so I mean, uh, with Madonna, she was definitely like my number one growing up, like in terms of like, you know, pop star, pop icon. Um, one of my first memories of pop music was my my dad had the Lice La Bonita like uh, single, like vinyl single. And I remember him like putting it on and we'd like dance to it. And I don't know if part of it, like now when I think about it, I'm like, why do my parents like this song so much? And I don't know if it's like, it was slightly ethnic sounding, you know, for like brown immigrants in Canada, you got those Spanish guitars. So like, I think that's as good as like it gets for on the radio for something that doesn't sound like super white. Yeah, they just, they love that. And I think for me, um, the song that like really got me into Madonna was I'll Remember, which was like on the With Honor soundtrack. It came out in like 1994, I want to say. And then Bedtime Stories is like one of my all time favorite Madonna albums. So she's just been like a huge inspiration for me, just like as an artist, but also it's been so interesting revisiting her work. And like, you know, I listened to Erotica like a few months ago and you know like she's talking about aids on the album right like it's like she was she was including queer culture and talking about issues social issues that like nobody else was in the like the 80s and 90s and that quite frankly like we wouldn't even really see a lot of contemporary artists touching the stuff that she did like i think it's so easy to criticize her and you know we have the conversations around appropriation and all those things are valid but i i think in those conversations sometimes we forget just like how much she actually pushed like important conversations forward. So yeah. Anyways, that was a very long answer. You're going to get used to my long winded answers and you can interrupt me anytime. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was wonderful and totally agreed. Like in the sense of, yeah, you know, there's very valid criticism leveled at Madonna, but I think you're absolutely right that there is so much that she was doing that was so groundbreaking and so important. And that also needs to be acknowledged. And I think you know, you do that in your work as well, talking about things that, you know, are maybe controversial for some people or complex, even just in I'm a fag for you in the video specifically. There's this throughout the video, you, Phil and Rodney are having this sort of, I guess, dis not discussion, but these sort of soundbite moments talking about the word fag and the process of reclaiming that. And I think that even within the LGBTQ plus community, there's so much debate about reclaiming that word specifically. Um, what does reclaiming the word fag mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, first of all, this is one of those words that like, I never, ever thought I would reclaim, you know, like queer was like a hard enough battle. And now I love queer, but like fag, it was like, I heard that word so much here in Alberta growing up. Like, I, I, I'm not even exaggerating when I say I think that there was six years of my life where I heard fag or gaylord. I, I know that we don't use gaylord anymore, which is funny because I'm like, let's reclaim gaylord. But anyways, that, that, that's my next music video. But fag is one of those words that like, I just heard so much. And 
you know, I just, uh, I never wanted to hear it again. And I remember in my 20s, like someone interviewed me for like, I think like an academic project where they were like, you know, let's talk about reclaiming fag. And I was like, no way. Like I'm never, ever, ever, you know, that's not really something that's of interest to me. I'm a fag for you. It's interesting how transness actually has been a vehicle for me to look back into my past and appreciate like um, fag for what it is and like faggotry for what it is. And like, I think what, you know, transness and trans femininity and faggotry have in common to me, I mean, uh, in terms of how both identities are treated in the world is, is misogyny, right? Like I think like when you talk about fags and faggotry, you're talking about like hyper, hyper feminine, um, gay men usually. Right. And I think trans femininity, like transphobia is often rooted in misogyny. And so I think like in a roundabout way, me embracing a trans feminine identity has had me re-examine all of my experiences of misogyny in my life. And certainly, you know, being called a fag was sort of like probably one of the earliest, but like one of the things I love about the word is that it's our word, you know, like it's actually like in, in 2021, like you're not actually allowed to say it. We're allowed to say it in the community, but you're like straight people aren't allowed to say it. And I love that, you know, I love that. Like it's something that we can own and yeah. It's so interesting that you talk about this because I'm, I'm making a connection with the first essay of yours that I've read. I'm afraid of men. Um, it came out, I want to say four years ago. And I had this epiphany reading the essay that I was always afraid of straight men. How has that sort of book been fundamental in, 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 in your, and sort of shaping your trajectory in recent years and sort of your willingness to approach these tough, complicated subjects like the reclamation of the word fag? You know, one of the things that really annoyed me about I'm Afraid of Men was how often, you know, people would be like, I love your new book, I Hate Men. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> it's not I Hate Men. And I mean, like, that would have been a fine title. But like, for me, I think the tension of I'm Afraid of Men is also being a queer person. Like, what does it mean to desire men and be afraid of men, right? It would, in some ways, it would just be easier if you just hated men. But like, for me, the, the challenge has always been both of those things is to have desire and to also be afraid. And so um, I ended up writing this song and like the hook was like, are you hitting on me or are you going to hit me? Right. And so it's like that weird tension and that like dangerous tension. And so, you know, I, one of the things that felt really important about I'm Afraid of Men was I wanted to talk about the ways that we're all complicit in in sexism and misogyny and patriarchy, right? Like, again, once again, I think it would be so easy for that book to just be like me being angry at straight men. But I wanted to talk about the ways in which, you know, I'd experienced uh, pain from gay men, from trans men, from women, um, and the ways that I was also complicit and like, how can we how can we think our way out of that in a way? Like, what does it mean for us to move forward? So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Definitely. One of the, one of your works that we're really excited to talk about as well, um, is your play, How to Fail as a Pop Star. Um, I'm a Fag for You is featured in that. And it's a play that you wrote and performed about failing to achieve your dream of becoming a pop star. The dream of pop superstardom is such a common dream for so many queer people. And I'm curious for you where that that dream started and what that dream sort of first looked like for you. The thing about pop stardom is that it's 
escape. It's fantasy, right? Like I think about what those songs meant to me, what much music meant to me. And I, I don't, I don't think that it's coincidental that I felt such a connection to pop music because I think it, it offered me an alternate reality to the daily homophobia that I was facing. Like, you know, there was being called fag at school every day. And then there was coming at coming home, lighting candles, pretending I was a witch from the craft and listening to <laughs> title by Fiona Apple and just like, you know, like escaping. Right. And that's what pop music offers. Right. And I, you know, now looking back, even working on pop star, I was like, it, it feels kind of ludicrous that like a Brown queer kid in Edmonton really believed that they could make it. And I think, again, that's the gift of pop music, right? The gift of pop music is like hearing Whitney Houston's voice for the first time, hearing that Bodyguard song and being like, whoa, I believe. And not only do I believe in this singer, but I believe in myself, maybe. I believe maybe this is what I want to do. I want, I, you know, like that's the beauty of pop stardom. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. One of the things that I love about your, you know, attempts to make this pop superstardom dream come true was performing in malls in Edmonton. Brittany, <laughs> even Alanis back in the early 90s, like during the Canada pop days, like she was in the malls. And to me, even to this day, to be honest, there's still something that I find very alluring and almost glamorous about performing in a mall. Um, I've never gotten the chance to do it. Is there? <laughs> but I'm hoping one day. <laughs> um, but I just because it's something that I'm just so fascinated by. Is there like a memory that sticks out to you about performing in a mall and, and what that was like? Oh, I mean, <laughs> first of all, let me tell you, it's not that glamorous. <laughs> I mean, I talk about this in the play, but it's like you've got like the smell of like New York fries in the background and like, because it's usually in a food court, right? Like that's where like the the stage, the makeshift <laughs> stage would be. I mean, it's particularly funny too, because when you tell people that you're from Edmonton, they're like, oh, West Edmonton Mall, like that's what people know you for. So it's, I think it's like a double whammy that I spent so much time, not only in malls because I lived in Edmonton, but also like that's where like the talent competitions were happening. But yeah, I mean, I talk about this in the play, but there's this moment where, well, I mean, you know, I was like very much paying attention. You know, when I think when you're at that age, you're always looking at what other people are doing as a way to assess who you are in the world and who you want to be. And I remember just like watching like uh, people, I mean, talking about Alanis Morissette, people getting up over and over again, these women and like these young women, and, and they would sing like, you ought to know, but they were like always classically trained. So it was always like, well, I'm here <laughs> to remind you. Like, just like a lot of vibrato and just like, why are they singing it like this? Like, I don't know why it sounds like this. And so I was like, fuck this. I'm not going to do the single. I'm going to do Mary Jane, which is like the ballad on Jagged <laughs> Little Pill.
And I remember getting up and like singing it a cappella because like that was my whole thing. I was like, I'm an a cappella artist. <laughs> and there was this one line in the her song where she's like, you're heading in the wrong direction. And so I actually like turned my back to the audience and delivered this verse, which I thought was so, like I was such an artist, you know, like I'm singing a cappella, I'm singing the ballad from Jagged Little Pill. Now my back is like, I don't even care about the judges, right? Like, and of course, like I, it was such a bomb. Like it was like, why did you turn your back on the judges? Like I said, it wasn't as glamorous as you imagine. Um <laughs> But I'm glad I had the experience because I, it does make for a rich story, right? Like, it, it really does. And like, I can't even tell you how much I love that. Also, as a fellow acapella artist at that time, <laughs> um, <laughs> because I didn't know how to play any instruments. Exactly. And I, re- exactly. I recorded my first album acapella by like pressing plain record <laughs> and singing into my boombox speaker. So I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the nice thing about the mall stuff too, is that like, I think sometimes that I think the doubt you have as you age is like, did I do enough? Like for the dream? Did I like, mm. you know, and this is like at the end of the play, there's like a list of 40 reasons of why mm. I might've failed as a pop star. And I think it, you know, we, we turn up the lights a little bit and it's a very intimate moment and it's like a devastating moment because I think that's the hard thing about failures, like you just, you, you don't know. I mean, it could be a number of reasons, but you don't know which one it is and you can't go back in time to actually know. And I think on the flip side, when I think about my trajectory and it's like, no, actually I, I, I did the things like I showed up to the mall. I sang Alanis Morissette. (laughs) Like I, I really tried. So like on one hand, it's like, oh, did I try enough? But it's like the mall is like always a nice reminder that like, well, no, actually you were there on Saturdays and you were singing your heart out. So you did, you did try, you know? I have the list here. It's actually very beautiful, bittersweet, funny. I'm just going to read a few just to give listeners an idea. So you write, I have failed at becoming a pop star. And here's a list of uh, 40 reasons why. Um, You write, I was born in Edmonton. I was born in 1981. My parents are immigrants. No one invested a million dollars in me. So why is that the fourth? (laughs) Why is money... Do you think that money is like the number one reason or number four in this case? I mean, the the list isn't structured uh, like with importance necessarily. I mean, certainly I was born in Edmonton. It's sort of like a bit of a joke, you know, and that's when people would laugh. And then as the list progresses, it's like, oh, this isn't funny. Like there's actually nothing like, you know, people think it's a joke, but then it sort of gets progressively harder and more painful in a way. And I have to say the older I get, like nepotism in Hollywood just like blows my mind. Yeah. Like I'm like I just found out who like Liza Minnelli's mom was, and I'm sorry I'm a bad gay, but I was like, <laughs> wait, are you how, are you serious? How? I did. I found out when I watched. Sorry, and I I don't I forget her name. Judy <laughs> Garland. Canceled. Judy. Yeah, I watched her her biography, <laughs> and I was like, wait, Liza Minnelli's her daughter, and I'm just like, of course. Like it's like when you look at who's successful in Hollywood, like you know you you very seldom. <laughs> get like a Madonna story, right? Like the classic, I went to New York, I had like $5 in my pocket. Like more often than not, it's like my dad, my grandfather, my uncle. Yeah, like I say, like investment, 
right? It's like when I, one of the things that was in Pop Store that I took out was that my parents did put me in piano lessons, which again, I feel really privileged that that happened, but we couldn't afford, my parents couldn't afford a piano. And so my parents gave me like, I'm not even joking, a paper cutout of a keyboard. And my mom was like, you're going to practice on this. And if you get good at it, maybe we'll invest in like, you know, a little like real keyboard, but it's like, you know, you're a 12 year old kid and you're practicing on a piece of paper and like, no wonder no wonder you're not learning, right? Because you can't even hear the notes right. when you're, you're hitting. So like, you know, like it's not just even about nepotism, but it's also just like having the kinds of resources um, in your house that means like your parents being able to like afford lessons, afford instruments. Like I didn't grow up with instruments in my house. You know, there wasn't just guitars lying around, you know, like all of those things are tied to money, right? So it doesn't have to be a million dollars necessarily, but like, certainly helps. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I found so exciting about this play is that, you know, as a culture, we really do not talk about failure, especially in this sort of social media age where everyone is showing the best version of everything. The idea of sharing failure is so terrifying. And, you know, we're taught often to never give up, you know, to keep going, keep working. And I'm just curious about what was the turning point for you where you made that sort of decision to give up on this dream? And what is your sort of take on the idea of giving up? And I feel like that's a conversation that's happening more and more now with so many high profile athletes and different people just deciding that something is not right for them and, you know, that that should be okay. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, in pop music, so much of it comes down to age, right? Like, I think for me, it was turning 30, you know, it was getting to 30 where I was like, and it's interesting, because when I look at how many of my musician friends I started out with in my 20s and teens, late teens, who then also turned 30, and then like went back to grad school or moved back home with their parents or whatever it is, it's like, you know, it was also funny when I started posting about pop star on Instagram and so many people would be like, never say never. And, you know, like I appreciate the sentiment, but like the reality is being on Letterman or playing SNL, like those things are highly unrealistic for someone who is 40, um, who is brown and queer and trans. Like that's just highly unrealistic. But, you know, I continue to make music, right? And with every album I make, with every video I make, um, with every, you know, single I put out, there's still this element of hope, like maybe this one, maybe right. this one, right? Like, and, and I'm so bad at it. Like, that's the joke, right? Is like, I remember even writing I'm a fag for you and being like, maybe this will be a gay anthem. And it's like, you put the word fag in it. Like, what were you thinking? Like, <laughs> no one's going to play this. No one can play it because it has the word fag in it. Like, I'm just really bad at like predicting what's going to be popular in music. So I don't know. Anyways. So, you, so- yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's so interesting because from the outside, you know, just to give a timeline um, to listeners, uh, you turned 40 this year. So when you when you say that you gave up at around 30, that's like 10 years ago. But for a lot of people, they've only really recently heard of you because you're really forging your own way as an artist. I, I feel that maybe giving up on that dream of pop stardom in a way that's very formatted kind of freed you to to give us really a very unique point of view, very unique voice. Um, Do you feel that sense of liberation from giving up on that dream? 
I mean, yes and no. Like, that's certainly the other angle, right? And Popstar is really rooted in failure. One of the things I said to the director is, like, I don't want this to be a story of resilience. It's like, I failed, but look at all the other things I've done in my 30s. Because I think that that, that could have definitely been the narrative. But I really wanted Popstar to be rooted in failure. It's like, I'm, I failed at this. And actually, no matter how many other things I accomplish in my life, I'm still brokenhearted about this thing. And there's even a line in the play where I'm like, I would trade any accolade, any achievement just to be seen as a singer. And so there's a part of me that like definitely it, it, I was trying to explain this to to someone the other day where I'm like, this is going to sound really dramatic and very ungrateful. So please bear with me. But like, sometimes the fact that most people, if I am privileged enough for them to know who I am and my work, it's like Vivek Shreya writer. And for me, it's like, I don't see myself as a writer, like the writing happened and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, again, thrilled and honored that I get to make books and write books and that people read them. But it's like, when I go to bed at night, like I'm a singer, like when I get on stage and sing, like that's who I am. And so sometimes Vivek Shreya's like musician, sorry, Vivek Shreya writer and people seeing me that way, it almost feels the way I feel about being misgendered. You know, it's like, I, I feel, and, and it's this hard, it's this hard thing because you try and explain that. And it sounds like you're being ungrateful because it's like, certainly I've had a lot of successful a success as a writer, but it's not, the number one love for me. Why? Like, why is that one thing <laughs> so important? Why? And you- I mean, that's so genuinely, like, not in a... I'm just so curious because there's a lot of it that I relate to in that as well. Like, I'm a comedian and that's sort of how I'm known, but my great love has always been singing um, and performing. And I know that I'll uh. also probably never really be seen that way um, first and foremost. So I'm just curious for you, like, why that is the most important. And again, because this is such a common dream dream among so many queer people, like, what is really the root of this attachment and dream of the pop star? I mean, it's funny. Like, one of the things we talked about, it's a really great question. One of the things we talked a lot about was, like, the word famous, you know, in, in when we were workshopping. And, like, I've always steered away. Like, I've never been like, I want to be famous. And part of it is because when I think of fame, I think of fame for the sake of fame, right? I think of people who want to be famous. They just want to be known. They want to be recognized. But for me, it's like, I want to make an impact like so and I want to make an impact specifically with my voice. I think about how I feel like even talking about it right now, I'm getting chills. But like I think about how I feel or how I felt as a kid when I would put on R.E.M. or how I felt as a kid when I put on um, Cheryl Crow, you know, or how I felt like when I saw like, you know, Courtney Love on MTV for the first time and how it made me feel like. I was more than my body, you know, like it made me feel beyond the day-to-day mundane. Like it, it just, it gave me so much. And so there is this part of me that like, I'm like, but I want to give back in that way. I owe all of these artists. I owe music. Music has given me so much. I wouldn't have survived without music. I want to give back through music. So part of it is this like strange feeling of debt where I'm like, I want to return in the way that music has given back to me, has given me so much. I want to give back to music and I want to give to listeners what all of these artists have given to me. And then I think the other thing is honestly, to slightly contradict myself, I will say that there is something that happens to me when I sing and I hear my voice in a hall or in the bathroom that makes me feel one with myself that feels maybe in the ways that people like the joy they get from meditation or a good run. Like when I sing, that's when I feel 
quote unquote, most me. And again, I know it's lucky. I know I'm very fortunate to get to be seen at all. But if I could choose, <laughs> I would choose to be seen as a pop star. Blunt question: Are you are you a jealous person? Is it something that you needed to <laughs> to process? Because I know I know I I can be jealous when I see other performers, other comedians, other hosts getting, and I think it's it's a it's this this belief that maybe there's a scarcity, maybe there's a limited amount of opportunity, and that if they get it, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I think that artistic jealousy has been like one of the most painful like um, byproducts of being an artist. And part of why it's so painful is I feel like we can't really talk about it, right? Like you can't really, you kind of sound like a petty bitch if you're like, Mm, so-and-so has 50, 50 likes on their selfie. I only have 10. You know, like you just sound like you sound stupid. Like it's like, keep it to yourself. Right. Like, or, and like, but it happens all the time. And like, it's worse now, right? Like it's worse now because everything's quantified. You literally post something and you can see what someone else's post does right after yours. Like sometimes I'll have a good day and I like post an announcement of something or whatever, something's happened. And then I like scroll down and it's like, Oh wait, no, here's so-and-so on a billboard. Like you're just like, you know, like it's, it's really hard to like keep that, like keep that feeling in check. And so I think for me, the only way that I've gotten through feeling jealousy is actually just talking about it and like finding people who I can talk about it or even talking about it with myself. Because like, I think like any sort of like, quote unquote, bad emotion, you can't actually walk your way around it. The only way to navigate, you know, jealousy, just like, you know, anger or depression is to actually like acknowledge it. And so for me, so much of what I've had to do in the past, you know, five to 10 years is like anytime I'm having that moment, because I did this whole thing where I'm like, You know, when I'd feel jealous, I would like try to meditate and imagine their their image circled in a blue light and just sending them love and flowers, <laughs> you know, just like really trying to do that and it never fucking worked. But like now I'm just like, when I feel that way, I'm like, okay, Vivek, you're feeling jealous and that's okay. And I find that it's actually so much more effective to name it and to be like, you're having a feeling. It's not a great feeling. You're not proud of the fact that you feel it, but hey, you feel it. And um, yeah, so again, like it's interesting because jealousy obviously comes up in the subtweet, but it also comes up, um, you know, I talk about in pop star, like being envious of like my arch nemesis, Justin Timberlake. And I think like for me, <laughs> it feels really important to have those conversations openly so that other artists understand that actually it's normal and it's okay. Like, I yeah. think it's less for me, the issue with jealousy is less feeling the jealousy and it's more how we channel that. Right. And I think what I see on social media is people acting badly, largely because they're jealous. And I'm not talking about me per se, but I'm saying, you know, I think again, nothing wrong with feeling jealous, but like, you know, yelling at other people, calling out other people, like what, whatever bad behavior tends to happen on social media. I, I feel like a lot of it like does stem from jealousy and the inability to actually just name to yourself or to someone in your life, I'm feeling jealous. Right. You know? So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess to end, I kind of want to come back to that idea of giving up that we've, we've spoken so much about and, I guess to like connect it to one of my, you know, favorite pop heroes, Alanis, and in her song, You Learn, she's listing off all of these things that she recommends, like, you know, walking around naked in your living room and all of those things. Would you recommend giving up? (laughs) (laughs) All I can hear is like, I recommend (laughs) giving up. (laughs) Um, Do I, would I recommend giving up? Oh, uh, I mean, it's such a good question. Um, I mean, for me, 
I mean, I'm going to walk around this question a little bit here, but like for me, it's less important to say I'm going to give up. Like, again, I don't feel like I ever, even when I say I have failed as a pop star, I don't feel like I've quote unquote necessarily given up. I think the difference is, is that I've acknowledged that hard work isn't enough, right? That again, going back to what we're saying in, in these tropes, and I say this in pop star, like I always believed that because I had, I believed I was talented and that I, you know, uh, try to work really hard that that equation equals success. And that's actually a lie. And it's a lie rooted in meritocracy, right? It's this idea that if you just show up and if you think you're talented at some point, you'll, you'll succeed. And and I think successful people perpetuate that all the time, right? Successful people are like, I just worked really hard and that's why I'm so great. And it's like, well, no, actually, again, Liza Minnelli, <laughs> no joking. But it's like, you know, like, sure, hard work is part of the equation, but like luck is part of the equation, equation and how you look is part of the equation and what your race is is part of the equation and the right time and the right place and who you know and the money, like there's so many factors. And so I think that what I would love to see I don't know that I would recommend that people necessarily give up on their dreams. Like, I think that that's such a personal thing. And, you know, I even talk about this in Popstar. Like, one of the last lines in the, in, the, in the project is, like, I talk about how no matter how much this thing breaks my heart, it's still a box I have under the bed. You know, it never goes away. So, you know, it's such a personal journey for everyone. But I think what I would love to see is, like, more conversations around it being... Uh, more like uh, that any ambition is tied to more than just hard work that it's not just about perseverance that perseverance is maybe one part of the equation but it's not the only part of the equation and I think that that's what I when I when I hear the language of giving up I I, I hear it as like like resistance to perseverance and instead of giving up it's more like can we just talk about how this one thing isn't necessarily going to be the be-all and end-all and when parents are encouraging their kids or coaches are encouraging their athletes that you know that the thing that they're not that the thing that they're not saying is like you just have to work hard because again I don't think that that's that's the be-all and end-all well, thank you so much, Vivek. It's been so amazing for doing Oh, that. thank you so much. And I just want to say, like, I really loved this conversation. It's so nice to talk to people who, like, you know, clearly have, like, had the generosity of time to, to like, look into the work. And, yeah, I feel like we could chat for hours. So thank you again Definitely. so much for, for your time. And, yeah, this was really, really, really nice. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank yeah, you so much. Amazing. This was really, really nice. Okay, take care. Vivek Shreya. The play How to Fail as a Pop Star is available in print form wherever good books are sold. Her new book, People Change, will be out in January 2022. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What are you obsessed with this week? The Ultimate Escape, reality television. So right now I'm watching F-Boy Island. <laughs> Have you heard about it? I keep hearing about it. I hear like little bits here and there. So I don't even know what the full idea is. So F-Boy is, you know, the the TV exp- the TV term for fuck boy, basically. So uh, guys who have a lo- lots of sex, usually straight guys, but they're, you know, queer fuck boys, as we know. Um, and really it's this... 
evolution based on like The Bachelor and Love Island and even 90 Day Fiance and all these dumb dating shows that with, you love that I love with disposable straight people. They all look the same to me. I can't <laughs> differentiate. So it's called F Boy Island um, because the premise of the show is for the three leads, three women to figure out if their romantic interest is an F boy or a nice guy. So at the start, there are 24 guys. There are 12 F boys, 12 sweet guys, nice guys. <laughs> and we don't know who is who. Boys, itty bitty boys. I like funny guys. I like silly guys. I like a beard. I like a clean face. I'm hoping to have some fun and see who does have good intentions. He looks like a guy that has two phones. We're very intelligent women. We're going to sniff out these troublemakers. I'm so nervous. I'm sweating right now. Um, so they all meet the three contestants. Two are really boring, but there's one that I love, CJ. She makes the show. She is the, she's the horny bimbo. She <laughs> admittedly has been with so many f boys and you know she and, enjoys that and does cj want a good guy now or is she, she still happy with the fuck boys i think she re deep down i think she's gonna go for the f boy because i'm just starting now but they the the assumption is that they should all go for nice guys and are they all like in their 20s yeah, most of them. One looks ancient, and he's probably just a you know thirty year old millennial. He's a firefighter from Seattle. I'll uh, choose him. Yeah, he's hot. What are you obsessed with? So I'm obsessed with this podcast called The Mixed Reviews, which I discovered because my friend Liam was a guest on the show. Basically, it's a film podcast. So every week they take, or every two weeks they take a subject usually an actor or sometimes a theme or a director. And they do a deep dive into the subject's entire filmography. Wow. You love it. I love it. You're obsessed. You're an obsessive, obsessed, obsession. Exactly, everything. because they're obsessed with yeah, everything that they're talking about. And every time I listen to an episode, it makes me want to watch like every single movie they discuss. Like which, which, who, who? Like who did, who did they do? So they've done... I mean, they've they've have like a hundred episodes now, so they've done a lot. They've right. done Michelle Pfeiffer, Sally Fields, Antonio Banderas. I was a guest for their Madonna episode. Yes, we all know how patchy that <laughs> filmography is. So it was a bit of a shit show. They've done Barbra Streisand. Then they do like theme episodes. So there was like Dragon Cinema or like The Road Trip, wow. and they do like all the road trip movies. And I love that. They're so fun and have such a great chemistry together. And Who they're not the pretentious. Their name are Gavin and Louie. Amazing. And, you know, a lot of film podcasts can be kind of pretentious. No way. <laughs> but this feels like really accessible. And I think in the way that the best podcasts do, you get to start feeling like you're friends with mm. the host. Although now I really am friends with them. So like I wormed my way in. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Nantali Ndongo is our contributing producer. Judy Tsigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. We are recording this season at Tomei Park Studio. Of course, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Chosen Family Show. 
Leave us a five-star review on Apple. It's been a little while. We need a new one. Virgo season is here, so don't miss our episode of Lucky Stars, the web series where we roast celebrities born under a sun sign. It's on the uh, Extra Magazine YouTube channel. And of course, you can listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. We can can never never say say goodbye. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.